Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we are going to revisit the topic of conspiracy theories. This is a topic I've previously discussed with my guest, Daryl Robert Schoon. Daryl is a financial forecaster who has achieved a measure of fame for his forecast of the 2008 financial crash. He is the author of a number of books, including the novel, You Can't Always Get What You Want, and a number of other nonfiction books, including Light in a Dark Place, The Time of the Vulture, Report to the House Select Committee on Intelligence, Is God Confused? Is God Confused? <laughs> and The Way to Heaven. Welcome, Daryl. Thank you, Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. I really enjoy being in, being here. Yeah, we're having a great time. Great time. I'm, I'm delighted that you're here in Albuquerque, and I, I trust this, this is now your second visit. It yes. won't be your last. I, I, uh, the hospitality's been so good, I don't think I can turn down the possibility of another one. Well, we did have a lengthy conversation previously about conspiracy mm. theories, and for those who haven't viewed it, I'm going to link Okay. to it now in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. Uh, I hope we're going to go deeper. Mm -hmm. We're going to cover new material mm -hmm. today, uh, but it certainly would be uh, of value for viewers to watch uh, yeah. our previous conversation. It strikes me, um, as I think about conspiracy theories, one of the major issues is trust. Ah. Who do you trust? How, how do you know if you can trust anybody? anybody? And are we living in an era in which trust in general is breaking down, which happens usually between paradigms? If, if the old materialistic paradigm is breaking down, we're moving into we don't know what, but hopefully a new paradigm. That, that is a time when, according to the, the great sociologist Pitterum Sorokin, whom I regard as something of an intellectual hero. Social norms break down across the board. You know, Jeffrey, this area is, is fascinating to me. And in my life, there's certain areas that I, I've really focused in on. I was thinking, for example, as opposed to food. Now, I love to eat. I've had a restaurant. I, I, I mean, I've eaten far better than most people. I mean, I've really been lucky in terms of eating. And yet, I know I'm not an expert in food. I know that. I know that I enjoy it, but I know I'm not an expert because it hasn't got my attention to the degree that other areas have. All right. In my own perception of myself and my knowledge base, I know an extraordinary amount about money. Enough to, you know, you're a recognized expert and public speaker on that, on that topic. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Other areas of which I had a total focus on also has is, is also conspiracies. Mm -hmm. Now, why? Why am I interested in conspiracies? Because it's not conspiracies per se. It led me to conspiracies. I believe, Jeffrey, that because I knew when I was when I was in high school, I was already reading books on power politics. Mm -hmm. All right. I mean, I was reading Foreign Policy magazine. All right. I mean, I'm just in high school in the in the fifties. 
Okay. And, and I'm reading books on, I mean, I empower the interplay of power. It's power that fascinated me. Mm-hmm. All right. And so it wasn't that I was conspiratorially con- inclined, but I knew that the, that what was being put out there was a cover story in a way. Mm-hmm. All right. I knew that their excuses, that the establishment's excuses for the Vietnam War were, were but that. I, my research had already shown me that this the uh, Viet, uh, uh, South Vietnamese regime that the United States was supporting, no dim dim, all right, was a uh, puppet government put in place by the CAA, which is a remnant of the old French colonial empire. All right, so I knew all these yeah. things. I knew who Dulles was, the brothers, not just John Foster, his brother Alan Dulles, and the CIA. So I knew all this stuff just from that. Okay, so I always had a healthy. A healthy suspicion of the common fare and who was in the kitchen, mm-hmm. who was dishing it up, and who was being served. And so there's a, a total difference between the two. So as I went through life, and because I was always focused on these things, I, I saw more and more as it went on. Now, what brought me to where we got to? This is what was fascinating is that. What brought us together? And we've known each other since 1971. Yeah. Okay. And that I'm sitting here is totally unexpected. It, 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 to me. Yeah. I knew you had interviewed. I mean, I remember one time when I was at the Temple of Universality with Betty Tadaleski, all right, our minister there, deep in a, spirit, a spiritualist church, all right. And she's telling a story about how she met a, a, a healer. In India, in 1982, at the Oberoi Hotel, at an international conference on on spirituality, and this lady's name, she was in the room. She saw this extraordinary her hand going in, the the fire coming out of the thing, and she saw healings in front of us. And her name was Sri Shrakravarni, and we had no idea who she was. So, so Martha and I were, you know, she was putting together the for YouTube video, and we go, how do we spell her name? So we're guessing. We've never heard of her, never seen anything about her, and we type in what we thought was a close approximation of this healer's name, and it comes up on your channel with you interviewing Sri Chakravarti. Jeff, there you are. So you have, you've been, and you've been, you know, many of the people I've read about, you've talked to them. But the fact that I would be here, well, never entered my mind, all right, that I had done or was doing anything that would justify me being in this position. (laughs) And what brought me here was a an absolute and this is one of my thing about fate and Dharma. The very book that I wrote that got me into this place, I hadn't intended to. It was a story that I'd been carrying around in my with myself since 1986 when I met Howard Hughes' ex-banker and he told me this extraordinary story and I'd been flogging it. I'd been knowing it was too hot. CIA, all these things, you know, which I thought, man, people are going to love this. Freaked him out. All right? Mm-hmm. So something happened this spring. I decided to write Adam Schiff because of all this stuff with Trump, all this stuff with, you know, the, the, the political thing in the United States, you know, disarray, mm-hmm. and, and, and send them this, uh, what I knew. And I never expected them to do anything because I, nothing has happened. Nothing has happened yeah. so far. So far. But what I did this time is I sent uh, a cover letter telling them about how my how I came by this information, and then I sent the scanned documents and all the articles that explain it wasn't just cr- my craziness. I was just not a nut. Connie's. I had letters from CIA 
people. I had letters, letters that Norman told me he'd been told to destroy. Mm-hmm. All right. I had articles in the LA Times corroborating the story. You know, Norman being the banker, banker. Who, who, who you met in prison. In prison. What, what puzzles me is how did he manage to bring these items with him into the prison? Because when you're going in there, they're not expecting you to be doing anything. All right. They aren't. They're just, you're just reporting. And so I'm, I'm sure he just probably had a briefcase. You know, they go through, it doesn't mean anything to them. He was in there for, they, they, as Norman believed, he was being, he had been set up by the Reagan White House because of what he knew of, because of what he had been involved in. All right. Which was, Basically, a skim by the Reagan White House and the CIA of a $500 million Saudi fund. Mm. And he had been asked by this, by the, this front movie production company to go approach the Saudis and, sh- and ask them for the money, which he did. And then he got kicked out because of an argument he had with the deputy director, past director of the CIA general, Robert E. Cushman, and ended up a year and a half later in prison, mm-hmm. which he was convinced it was a setup. Right. So he brought the, I don't know how he brought these papers in. I mean, they just let him bring all oh, of yeah. these. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No big deal. Or you, can, yeah. you can bring a briefcase full of papers with Or you can you. have them sent to you. Yeah. But I believe he probably had them with him. All right. And I don't know why. And when, so as I understand the story, he thought he was going to get out quickly. Oh. And when his appeal didn't work out, he realized he better tell somebody. Oh. And you were there. He, he, when I met Norman, um, he told me he was innocent. <laughs> I was the first person I knew in prison. There, there, I knew some people were there not for what they, th- yeah. We're framed for two of my friends. They were drug dealers. I mean, I know drug dealers. I was a drug dealer. All right. Mao, this Chinese guy ran a gambling operation in, in Honolulu, which is illegal. And he got set up by his brother. You know, the cops just wi- wired up his brother-in-law and had him agree to a loan to get paid back. And so he ends up in jail, which I'm glad I spent a great many years with Mao. All right. As a, as a friend. All right. Mm-hmm. My other friend was a lawyer, you know, and things happened. And, and I knew he wasn't drug, but he got put in for dealing drugs. It was an easy hit for the feds to do to me. I'm a drug. I was, I, it was a, it was a, what happened to me was called a, uh, it was a, basically a setup. But, you know, I know the deal. Yeah. Norman. No. Norman. No. Norman had been Howard Hughes's really international banker. Before he was with Howard Hughes, he had been with Daniel K. Ludwig, who was the richest man in the world when the Forbes 400 list came out. Mm-hmm. Before he was with Ludwig, he was with, with uh, Albert Zuckerman in New York, who's New York real estate. Mm-hmm. All right. Norman was a stellar figure in international finance. And he knew the Saudi royal family because of his relationship, of his friendship with Adnan Khashoggi. He had also been a banker to Adnan Khashoggi. So in 1980, so Norman ends up in prison with me and tells me he's going to get out in three months. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he really thought he was. And the day his, his sentence got turned down, he, he invites me to his room and he says, he wants me to write a story. He's going to show me some papers and wants me to write a story and get it out of the prison. But the story for safety, because you couldn't piece his story together from all the documents. All right. He told me the story. And it was really sort of shocking. This is, this is what's in your book, Report to the... Yeah, How Select Community Intelligence. Yeah. So I I put this all together. Nobody wants... It's like, it's too hot. I mean, it's like, that's my feeling. Yeah. But so I put it together anyway, and I send this out to my, to certain people I know who I think are influential. Mm -hmm. You wrote me back. Yes, I did. All right. And you said, dear Daryl, he said, Daryl, this is fascinating. You know? So I'm, 
not inclined to conspiracy theories, but we do know they exist. Perhaps we should have an interview on the nature of conspiracy theories. Right. And I thought, wow, what an idea. And the reason why you knew that was that you had known me for so many years, since 1971, I had worn different hats, I had, you know, I'm sure in your world, I was a, an odd, <laughs> you know, billiard ball bullet. I've always thought of you as a person with a very interesting and curious mind. <laughs> Folks, let me show you what can happen if you have <laughs> That's a warning. <laughs> and so, and so you invited me to Albert to do a series of interviews, which yeah. you did. And what I loved about this. This is now our tenth. Our, our tenth, yeah. Mm-hmm. What I loved about it was, you have given me the first chance to really say what I want to say on many subjects. Mm-hmm. Metaphysics has always been my first love. But I made my reputation in a public way about money. Yes. Metaphysics and money, like some, but most people don't go there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can talk about derivatives and, and futures and, and the gold market and, and the manipulation of this with absolute clarity and certainty. But I don't want to go, when I start moving off top, what they consider off topic, no go. Right. Okay. And so you, when you, because we start, we started talking about metaphysics because I know you and you know me. And so it allowed me a different audience where I could literally let down my hair. All right. (laughs) And talk to you without. Yeah. And this is what we're doing. Right. All right. So what happened is, is that the conspiracy thing, what it what it, it triggered was I have a very I have a very deep knowledge in my mind because I've watched power, and the story that came to me involved people at a covert level yes. that you don't see. Mm-hmm. All right, and just this afternoon I showed you what I considered my resource guide yes. in a way, yep. an index guide for what mm-hmm. I believe bolsters my. My thesis or right, my theory, right? Because these thoughts and and because what happened is is that the, the conspiracy that Norman told me about the money that he said had been skimmed. I'm 1986 reading the L.A. Times. I'm not quite. I'm in prison in my anniversary reading the L.A. Times at Lompoc Federal Prison Camp, and there's a story in the L.A. Times about the Iran Contra money being discovered. Co-mingled with five hundred million dollars of U.S. Saudi funds for the Afghan resistance. That's what Norman's been telling me about. I mean, no, you don't read. Nobody knew about the Afghan fund. Yeah. And here he told me about it, and I'm reading the newspaper. There it is. Yeah. And it said it was it was found in in a secret CIA Swiss bank account controlled by an Israeli Swiss banker. Mm-hmm. So, man, that's interesting. Okay. I find out because of me. That this the Israeli Swiss banker was a guy named Bruce Rappaport. I not only find that out, I find out that he was had a bank in Swiss. He wasn't just a guy with a bank account. He owned the, uh, what they call the Inter Maritime Bank in Geneva. Mm-hmm. All right, and then he also owned the Bank of New York in New York, an established New York bank. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's in my brain. So in two thousand and eight, I'm reading an article on nine eleven. You know, like sort nine eleven. And it's a 56-page article, in-depth explanation of another alternative explanation of why that happened. Why what happened? 9-11. Okay. All right. And what they said was it involved 
uh, and they just backtracked on what went on. And they said, when you look at what happened in 9-11, uh, 40 or 60% of the casualties were in three entities. Uh, Cantor Fitzgerald, bond traders, Eurobond bond traders, and the Office of Naval Intelligence. And they said that the Office of Naval Intelligence had been conducting an investigation into these bonds that were due on basically September 11th, 10-year bonds, yeah. all right, that had been covertly issued to buy, as a part of the U.S. effort to buy up Russian assets that were being sold off by the state, all right? And they were coming due and they just- In other words, there was a $250 billion bond fund that had been established uh, and the purpose of this was to raise money to buy assets that were being sold by the Russian government that yes. had previously been state-owned. Yes, yes. And, and these were 10-year bonds issued 10 years prior, and so they were going to become due. The next day. On basically September 11th. Yes. And the, and the paper by E.P. Heidner called Collateral Damage basically alleged that um, – that and, and 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 I showed you the the picture. Yes. The, Very well researched oh. paper, as best I could tell. But then the question is, who do you trust? How do you trust? How do you even begin to know whether it's trustworthy? Especially, you don't even know who wrote it. And, and could it even be more disinformation? Yes. Okay. Well, the truth is, disinformation is put out there to point the blame at somebody else. Yeah. Well, this clearly wasn't. This clearly was not put. Was put there to, and it blamed basically. People within what we call what the right wing is now called the deep state. Mm -hmm. But I, what I want to say about the deep state, the right wing didn't make up that term. The term was coined by Peter Dale Scott, who is a professor at UC Berkeley, I think in political science. And he just basically said there's a mechanism of power within the power structure that is not elected but with its own agenda of total power. And they run policy. Mm. All right. And so... The, the thing about the belief about this theory is, why would you believe? Well, you know that building number seven never got hit by a, a, a plane and went down right next door. What do you think? The vibrations did it. It was the sonic boom from the World Trade Center brought that thing down. And all those answers are basically in that 56-page document. Yeah. Now, why it came to my attention was, I'm reading this 56-page document called Collateral Damage explaining the 9-11 the mm -hmm. debacle. You know, tragedy. And I find out that in the week after 9-11, in three days, $240 billion of unreported securities were passed through the Bank of New York. Not, never reported that the SEC, for the first time in their history, has suspended reporting activities on financial transactions due to the exigencies of 9-11. And the report pointed out, they had no problems. None of their computer systems went down. None of the backup systems. They had nothing. They weren't affected. But they went. They stopped reporting. And in the next three days, $240 billion of, of securities were cleared through the Bank of New York. Bank of New York and, and the Wall Street Journal pointed this out. Suspicious activity. Yeah. I go, Bank of New York? That's Bruce Rappaport's bank. All right? Yeah. So now I'm going, wow. That's so. That's how... To me, these things get put together in my mind yeah. because I really don't know more than anybody else. What I no, I do more than nobody else. I, I, I want to frame that again. It's like metaphysics. Because I know a lot about metaphysics doesn't mean my conclusions are true.
Okay. When I met you in 1971, like I told you before, when we first started talking, I go, wow, you, I thought, this guy has read as many books as I have. I knew by 1971, in the last five years, I had spent an extraordinary amount of time reading metaphysical books, trying to explain the phenomena of what I encountered after taking acid and, and reading all this stuff. We were in the middle of what was then called the counterculture. Oh. And, and we were both trying to figure out what is this counterculture? What's, what's going what's on? What's going here? on? And, and, and truly was, we weren't trying to explain to our parents. We weren't even trying to explain to ourselves what the counterculture did to us, Jeffrey. It raised questions that we never had before. Yeah. Like the question of reality itself. Mm -hmm. What is reality? Is the history you've been taught even true? Mm -hmm. I mean, it led me to things like, you know, so, you know, I, like everybody else thought astrology was a, just a, a, a thing in your newspaper. Yeah. All right, just a Sunday little throwaway thing. And then I find out that, that astrology was basically tossed aside at the Council of Trent in the 16th century by a vote, as this was reincarnation. They voted it out. It was gone. Otherwise, it was part of the, you know, doctrine you could talk about. But after that, they lost the vote. Gone. All right. I'm reading and I find out, I mean, I know nothing about the Elohim. I don't even know who it is, but now I know about the Elohim, that Jewish, I don't even know what it really is, but I know there's, there's these El, uh, seven Elohim or whatever of, of what Yahweh is supposed to be one of them, okay? So I don't, I'm sure you know, what are the Elohim? Well, <laughs> Elohim is uh, a Hebrew plural word, which is used uh, often uh, in the Torah and elsewhere. Uh, as uh, an appellation for God. And God is thought of as singular. So people say, what's this plural word oh, here okay. being used to express uh, God? And sometimes it's, it's thought of as like the heavenly host. In other words, God and the kingdom of God, meaning God and the angels and whoever else is up there in in you know, with God. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm reading about that. And I also find out I'm, I'm getting, you know, exposed to Hindu. Th and I hear about the seven rishis. Mm -hmm. Seven. Seven rishis. That's like the seven Elohim. So I'm trying to make all these connections. Yeah. We're in the dark. Yeah. We're in the dark searching for light. Okay? Yeah. That was the 19, that was the late 60s, early 70s. Right. This is 50 years later. Yeah. 50 years later, uh, finding ourselves in the dark searching for light. And I think Jeffrey, you and I have found, if not some light, what we mis have mistaken for the light. Because <laughs> right? I don't want to be too certain about what we've seen. Right. But we have, to our own satisfaction, mm -hmm. found a lot more in these intervening 50 years of our search for it. Yep. And I think 50 years ago, we had far more questions than answers. And now we have some answers and still questions. Yep. All right? All right. But we've got a lot more answers than we had then. Yes. All right? A lot more. And it's and it's and it's taken a lot of conscious thought and effort along the way. Well, at least if we don't have more answers, our minds are filled with more stuff. They're for better or worse. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's what we've done. And and so we're we're looking at this thing about conspiracies and and how do you believe things 
All right. Well, just like metaphysics, yeah. and in fact, I brought this up today. One of my great, one of the first books I read in the Haight Ashbury about, about because I, I, like I said, I thought astrology was crap until somebody did my chart. <laughs> I had a cow. Mm-hmm. I had a metaphysical cow. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. How can this be? All right. Mm-hmm. Which is soon about to be joined by the I Ching. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can that be that you ask a question to a, through a coin and get this 4,000 year book to tell you about what you should, what's going on in your life today? Well, Carl Jung had a pretty good answer for both of those really? what he questions. Said. He talked about what he called synchronicity, which is synchronicity suggests Honestly, that the universe itself is alive, that we, you might say we are embedded in, within the mind of God. And that's why things seem to come together and work the way they do in ways that are completely incomprehensible in terms of conventional materialistic science. Absolutely. And, and that answers, I think, a question. I think, I, because I've seen the way information comes to me. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be like, why do I know that? Or why did I see that? Or why did I run to that person? I believe, and this is pure speculation, but I believe that when, that we're sort of like magnets. And when you have a, a thought that is looking for something, things start coming to you. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you and I have both had, we, even though we're in different areas, we've had both thoughts about this. All right. Thought. Yeah. What's like oh, we have we we have questions and that's mm-hmm. why when we talk to each other we get different nuances to the same question. Yeah. All right, and your database is so enormous that you can reference other pieces into this. Yeah. All right, so that is that's the same thing that, as with metaphysics. I've been deep into metaphysics. Mm-hmm. All right, I I mean deep into metaphysics, deep into metaphysics, and deep into conspiracy theories. Yes. Deep into conspiracy. And what I wanted to say to our viewers is that my, my discipline in, in looking at metaphysics is no different than the discipline I've used for, for, for power. That the conspiracies that I've seen that or I believe are there in politics are as a result of my questioning what is going on. Mm-hmm. And like, this is where I, I think I've, I've, I've been very fortunate. When I began investigating money, when I began investigating um, uh, metaphysics, when I began investigating power and politics, I had no preconceived notions about what was out there. It was a pure question. And the, the question itself led to a bunch of speculation. All right. Now, as you said, how do you know it's true? Well, Jeffrey, it's the same thing with metaphysics. How do you know it's true? We all have different paths. Right. In the end, each one of us can only be the arbiter of our own perceptual reality. Well, let me uh, pose a question to you. Given that there are these conspiracies, whether any particular one or any particular theory is valid or not, we can say in general, we live in a world that appears to be embedded with conspiracies. Oh, much more. They see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Far more. I, I mean, in a sense, I mean, and I can say this because this, I've always been prone to power politics. Yeah. I, the Dulles Boys. I knew what the Dulles Boys were up there. You know, I knew right. the power structure in America, the, the buildup of the military and what they were doing to, to do things. Okay. That was the innocence of the 50s. 
The innocence of the 50s. Most Americans were just happy to have a job, to get back to work. What do you think would be the most beneficial thing our viewers right now need to know about conspiracy theories? Well, I would like to put conspiracy theories and their thoughts about it in the context of the loss of trust. Mm -hmm. that, that regarding conspiracy theories, it's exactly like you said when you wrote me back. You said, Daryl, I am disinclined to believe in conspiracy theories, but we all know they exist. All right? My sense of what I see out there, of people passing conspiracy theories around, like the latest one is on coronavirus, and it's being passed out by Zero Hedge, saying that the Chinese let it out of their laboratory in Wuhan. Mm -hmm. They don't know. They were looking at coronaviruses in Wuhan. They know that. The doctor, they know the good doctor's name, and they posted the guy's name, and at... I mean, that's really like, holy smokes, are you going to do that? They don't care. They just did it because it feeds into a fear. Mm -hmm. Conspiracy theories find an audience among the fearful. Okay, that's it. Okay? Not just the suspicious. I would, on behalf of myself, I would like to make, say there's a distinction between the fearful and the suspicious. <laughs> All right? And I am merely suspicious and not fearful. All right? Okay. And I think that the great, greatest majority of conspiracy theories are tossed around by all these people who are in the paroxysms of fear of change. They have lost faith in institutions. They have lost faith in all these. So they'll believe anything that feeds their fear. You could tell them anything and they'll go into it. They won't believe them. Well, I'm going to assume that most of our viewers are a little more sophisticated than that. I think I think our viewers, for example, would like to have some guidelines in terms of what might be more trustworthy. You know, that's that's great because your heart, your heart. I believe, Jeffrey, that in the vagaries of life and all of the possibilities that exist out there yeah. and what can be true and what can't be true, only your heart is the compass. No. Okay? And that you can ask, the feeling that you get from, if you really quiet your mind, mm -hmm. if you <laughs> quiet your mind, try that one on, and I'm sure you have, <laughs> or you should have by now, all right? If you can quiet your mind and bring the thought in that you're thinking of, it'll tell you. It's In a way, it's sort of like uh, people who want to know, how do I know if I go to seek a guru that he's a real guru? Yes. But you know what? Even then. Or she's a real guru. Or she's guru. a real guru. <laughs> the impersonal life talked about the seeking. Yeah. And they said, I may, God, God may show you a real guru who really is at that elevated level and then show you his feet of clay. Because the purpose is for you to find the real leader in yourself. Not whether they're really true or not true out there in someone else. So even the search for the guru is appropriate at one point in your path, but perhaps at another point it isn't. Mm -hmm. All right? And, and so what I believe is, is that each one of us has a path here. And... I don't think that most people, I know that most people's past does not involve looking at conspiracy theories. 
to the degree that I have, or power. I don't, I don't, I don't claim to be an expert in conspiracy theories. I claim to know more about covert power than most people. Like I know about metaphysics. I, I see you as a student of these things. Yes. And, and I think students uh, learn best often from each other. Yes. And, 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 and because like I introduced you to that idea of Alan, Professor Alan Block. I'm really sad that Alan Block has passed away. All right. I didn't even know he had passed away until I was with you and we found his obituary. Yes. Died in 2017. Why? Because every time I ran across Alan Block's name, it, he, it was a footnote of some of the most incredible information about the world of dirty money, covert spies and power. Yeah. All right. And he was in these, and he's an academician. Well, there's a good guideline. Frankly, I think when you find someone who is really a trained intellect, a professor, willing to do deep research and to document it very, very carefully with footnotes that other scholars can check and verify and uh, whose work will be reviewed by other scholars, whether in or out of academia, that to me, that's a sign of uh, greater trustworthiness. It is. And if you're looking for truth, and that's why I showed them to you. Yeah. I, I went through a series of names. When you showed names. that to me, I thought to myself, I need to take some of these things seriously. When you have a very sober, serious, experienced, knowledgeable person who is very skilled at, at a particular discipline like historical research, and, and they're putting together a very thick treatise backed up uh, with uh, footnotes all the way, that uh, that's much more credible than many things you will find on I the mean, internet. I mean, when I showed you that paper called Collateral Damage with the ostensible explanation for 9-11, e. I pointed e. out E.P. Heidner. E. Heidner's uh, who paper. We don't know who, who we e. don't, I don't even, I know we, some guy existed, but I don't think it's really who we think. You know, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. But I pointed out the extensive footnotes. The footnotes that were the extraordinary. Diagram. Somebody spent a lot of a lot of time and probably money and money putting that together. Putting that, it was in depth. Yeah. This is where I got this information. This is where I got that information. This is where I got that information. Most of the conspiracies that you get, there's no information. I read it on the internet. I heard this on Fox and they may be true, yeah. but you're grabbing, you're just picking up stuff. The serious stuff is this kind of thing. And that's why I showed it to you. I, mm -hmm. I told you, I showed you, um, you know, Block's name. And I said, I know very little about this man, except his name keeps coming up in the most serious things that I find yeah. out. And very often there are credible records uh, available, court documents and the like, uh, it can paint a, a picture. Okay, now, an answer to your question just came through to me. Why should people know about these things? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The answer that just came through me was this, is that we are in that period of transition between two epochs, mm -hmm. all right? One is falling away. And what I have read about this period is that there's going to be a, that it's going to be a ripping away from the eyesight of most people of what they thought was true and real. Mm -hmm. It's going to be ripped away. They're going to, they're going to see reality in a way they never had before. The, the dark underbelly of oh. many of our cherished institutions, uh, we never wanted to even know that they had a dark underbelly is being revealed. The time of secrets is over. It is going to be revealed what the truth is. So the question may not be, what are the, what are people to gain by knowing this?
that may not be the appropriate question. The, the thing may be they are going to know it because it's the time. It's a time of awareness. What is going to happen is, is a lot of people are going to be shocked when they find out what's really going on. When they find out their financial institutions are being operated in a way, all these things, political, really all their institutions which they have faith in, there's going to be an awakening of humanity that is going to be distasteful to the vast majority. They, because they don't want to know it. Yeah. They're innocent. They've been innocent of it. They've, they went to finding out that you've been duped is not a pleasant thing to be. Now, myself, I've been suspicious of everything since high school. Our power. I've been looking at this mm -hmm. stuff. All right. And Jeffrey, what I want to say, had I not found spiritual God or acid or any of these things, I'd be a casualty of my knowledge. I'd be a, I, it would destroy me. I couldn't have any faith. I couldn't, I couldn't have any wherewithal. I couldn't have any belief, you know? But I know all these things, and I have tremendous hope. I have tremendous faith. So what, essentially, your message is to prepare people for the fact that they are going to be disillusioned, and that at the end of the day, it's going to be okay. You know, that's why I'm here. Because I couldn't have said it myself. All right. Because what you just said should be on our talk as the subtitle. <laughs> he is saying things so you won't be so dismayed when it happens or lost, loss of heart. The pendulum of change is moving through our world. And I think it's, it's, it reaches a state of extreme materialism. The belief that there's only an objective world, that spirit is not real, that there's only a, a, a cold conscious, that it's a mechanistic universe that runs according to prearranged physical and nothing else. That we're alone, we're at risk, we're at hazard in this unfeeling, unknowing universe. That the, and we've reached an extreme and we're, it's already swinging back. And what I said is this, to some, the pendulum of change is going to be a wrecking ball. To some, to many, the pendulum of change is going to be a wrecking ball. All right? I know that. And I believe it. That's where I learned a very great degree about mind control. Controlling my mind. Not mind control, which a lot of people think controlling minds. No, we talked about mindfulness. Mind that's mindfulness. We talked about mindfulness in our previous discussion about finance. And, and really, we're getting to the very same message, whether it's earth changes, whether it's financial disruptions, whether, whether it's political uh, machinations that are going on. Uh, we're likely to, or religious, we're likely to face incredible disillusionment. And the best antidote is mindfulness. Namaste. Daryl, Robert, Shun, once again, a brilliant discussion. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for having me, Dr. Jeffrey Mislow. <laughs> and thank you for being with us. Thank you.